Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Today we're going to take a look inside two new public radio programs scheduled to hit our airwaves this January. Coming up later, we're going to talk to the host and the executive producer of Reveal. It's a weekly investigative radio program from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. We're very excited about that. But first, David Remnick is the editor of The New Yorker. He already wore many hats before he took on this brand new radio show and podcast called The New Yorker Radio Hour. Today, Remnick joins us from a studio at The New Yorker to tell us more about his new program, which is being produced with WNYC in New York. It'll start airing on WNPR Sunday, January 10th at 10 a.m. David Remnick, welcome to Where We Live. Great to talk to you, John. Before I have you describe what the New Yorker Radio Hour is, maybe you can just talk about your role in it. I, I heard about this project for a while, and then I heard you were going to be hosting it, and I thought, you know, isn't he, like, busy? <laughs> yeah, he's a little busy, but everybody in the world is a little busy. I am in the really safe and good hands of people from WNYC, which is in New York, as you know, and they've set up shop here in the offices of The New Yorker. We're downtown at, at the very end of Manhattan Island on in One World Trade Center, new building, and we have a studio and an area for radio just one floor up from where we do our our work on the website and the men, the magazine and the rest. And they're terrific people. And I'm their student. And what it means to be host is I'm not on the show for the full hour. Um, I do, generally speaking, an interview that might go 15, 20 minutes with somebody. But there are all kinds of produced pieces, reporting pieces, comedy pieces. And the show is meant to be of the magazine. The people that are on are part of The New Yorker. But it's for radio. It's We can't do things like read the cartoons out loud. That's not going to work for radio. It's its 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 own form, radio, and we're learning it bit by bit. But it is interesting. You have had segments where your cartoonists are talking about the jokes that they're writing, and that's a fascinating window into the world, right? It's hard to talk about cartoons on the radio. Lord knows I've tried on my show before, but that just, I think, does what I hope the show's going to do for us is is give a little window inside the creative process of the world of The New Yorker, right? I think there'll be little bits of that, just enough. But the rest of the show should really be substantive, whether it's the substance of comedy or the substance of reporting or politics or what have you. It's not a show about The New Yorker, except here and there, just little windows of it. So when it comes to comedy, for example, we've had Lena Dunham, the star and creator of the show Girls, do a piece for us, and we'll have all kinds of people who write for the magazine and have been part of the magazine and in the orbit of The New Yorker doing radio things. In your second episode, actually, you interviewed comedian Amy Schumer about her evolution as a comic, and we have a little bit of tape from that conversation. Let's listen into a little bit of that. I wouldn't do any of my old jokes now. Because they're, you, they you, they feel stale or because you thought they were offensive or, or no, off they, in some way? because they feel stale and I have a yeah. bigger audience now and it's more people are looking to me and I have become in some ways a role model. And so I have more responsibility. 
What I liked about that interview, David, and I think what is going to be a part of the show is Amy Schumer is someone who you kind of can't avoid right now, right? There are plenty of interviews with her, but I, I felt like you were getting at some things that, that you maybe didn't hear elsewhere. Well, I think Amy Schumer had, and I love Amy Schumer, and I think that film that she did with Judd Apatow is terrific, and I went to see her at the Apollo Theater, and her TV show is, is superb. It's kind of the year of Amy Schumer, or was the year of Amy Schumer. But there were there were aspects of her act that came up for question by people who were her both her critics and her fans. And instead of dismissing it out of hand, she's a very, very intelligent and thoughtful person, and and she kind of thought these things through. It's, a, it's similar to Lena Dunham. Lena Dunham was criticized because her first season, there was really no presence of African Americans on the show. And instead of just becoming defensive, getting into a defensive crash and being dismissive, she took it on board and it shaped the second season. And I think Amy Schumer and it, similarly um, became an even deeper and more interesting comedian by responding to what amounts to a critical conversation. This sort of big profile that The New Yorker is known for allows you to get into some of these issues with, say, a comedian that wouldn't be a part of their act. How is it different in your mind creating a, a cohesive conversation on the radio to get into some of those subjects as opposed to doing it in a print piece? Is there something different that you're learning to do when you're when you're asking Amy Schumer about these things on the radio as opposed to trying to put it together in a long-form piece? It's incredibly different. Remember, a written piece, the interviewing part, is just the beginning. It's the gathering of material. It's the watching that subject in action. You'd be, in Amy Schumer's case, if you were writing a profile of her, you would not only interview her at length, but you'd try to watch her do things, work with her team at the television show or negotiate life in some way. A conversation on the radio is something very, very different and more focused on the conversation itself. The master of this, I think we'd all acknowledge, certainly on public radio, is Terry Gross. And what she does is, if I listen to her correctly, and I have for years, is that she is very conversational, but she is very sly, very shrewd, and knocks the subject subtly off balance so that they're not giving their usual answers. They're not, you know, everybody, particularly famous people, have wrote answers, set answers, that they're ready to give at a moment's notice. Right. If you ask George Clooney about being handsome or uh, his years on ER, he's got a little tape recorder in his head, and it's going to unspool the answers that he's done a thousand times. A good interviewer, and Terry Gross is is kind of the apogee of this, and others, I'm sure, are really good at it, including your own good self. But you throw that subject off balance so that they're not so totally relaxed that they're both boring and giving you their kind of auto answers. So now that you have this radio show, do you often think, okay, here's the person we we really want to get behind, we really want to get into, we want to learn about them, but we really think that the radio interview is the more appropriate way or the traditional print piece is, is the more important way? I mean, are you finding yourself now having these conversations saying, the thing I really want to hear from Amy Schumer isn't something I'd read on the pages of The New Yorker, it's something that I want to hear her say? Well, we've never pro- we didn't profile Amy Schumer this time around. I thought Amy Schumer was kind of overprofiled 
in every magazine in the world. The piece that we did have was Emily Nussbaum, our great television critic, doing a critical piece about Amy Schumer. I'm a little, I have to admit, as an editor, a little reluctant to do profiles of people who are being profiled everywhere all at once because they're on a huge publicity tour, because they have a big movie coming out, because the book is coming out. Now, sometimes it can't be avoided. I know radio people, television people, print people, and and web people all encounter this quandary. But I want those profiles in the magazine to have a lasting journalistic or literary quality so that six months from now they can be read for profit. What we do on the radio is going to be something different. You want it to be as optimally great for the radio at that moment as possible. And it's important for me and all my colleagues at The New Yorker to acknowledge that radio is different than what we're doing at the magazine. Where they overlap and they overlap well, great. But where they don't, we shouldn't force it. When you talk about overlap, I guess I'm wondering how much you've looked into what we all see is the obvious overlap between one who reads The New Yorker and one who listens to Terry Gross. You know what I mean? I mean, this, these seem to be audiences that are tailor-made for each other. How much do you know about the public radio audience, David, and how much did you think about that as you were going into this new venture? I think if I'm lazy about it, I kind of vaguely know that, yeah, there's an overlap of, of people who read The New York Times, listen to public radio, read The New Yorker, live in the coasts and, you know, this kind of cliche. But I also know that uh, having been around the country and elsewhere, that what's thrilling is that your audience also can surprise you. And I think the last thing you should be as an editor is relaxed, self-satisfied, bathing in the warm water of your kind of uh, liberal audience that you're giving them exactly what they expect. I think that's a, be- a recipe that's not good for the listener or the reader, and it's not a good recipe for the editor. You want to challenge that audience, challenge yourself. You know, we have a piece coming out next week that's by Tom Mallon, who's a, who is a conservative, and he's writing about the John Birch Society, and it's a really interesting piece by a conservative about not only the history of the conservative movement and the John Birch Society, which is an extreme version of it, but his disappointment in conservative extremists, and as a conservative. And that's not a point of view necessarily that every New Yorker reader is going to expect or have, and quite frankly, we should do it more often. Not because I want to make the magazine conservative or right-wing or anything like that, but we should come at things from surprising angles and ask tougher questions of ourselves and not get self-satisfied or relaxed. Otherwise, we're not going to understand a large part of the world you know, it's incumbent upon us to understand things that we might be dismissive of. Mm-hmm. One of the great things about the public radio audience, too, that those of us who work on the coasts often forget is that public radio is the only source of contact, really, with the media in places like rural Maine or in large swaths of any Western states. So that public radio may mean something in New York City or in Boston or in San Francisco or, or even Hartford, but it means something entirely different if you're in Wyoming and it's the only signal you get, right? And that's one of I, the I nice things about I what think, we do. I think that's true, but, of course, the Internet has changed all of these assumptions, too, that if you are sitting in um, Laramie, if you are sitting in Taos, New Mexico, you and you have 
a decent internet connection, there's no podcast, there's no publication, uh, there's no radio station even that is beyond your listenership. And I would think that with time, that's going to overturn some of our presumptions. The things that are that are losers in this revolution are things like local newspapers that have lost the capacity to survive economically or, or thrive and have either gone out of business or have diminished themselves so much in terms of their resources that they're not able to do the job that they were before. And what concerns me is, you know, let's say in a it could be on the coast or it could be in the Midwest or, or the Southwest. If in that city the mayors and judges were corrupt and being sent to jail by the local newspaper and investigative reporters there, what's replaced it? I want to know what's replaced it. Is it, is it going to be public radio? Is it going to be some new form of media? That's an important question to ask and have fulfilled over time. We're talking with David Remnick, who's the editor of The New Yorker and also the host of The New Yorker Radio Hour. It'll start airing on WNPR Sunday, January 10th at 10 a.m. More information available on our website, WNPR.org. We've got to take a break now, and when we come back, more with David on radio, on podcasting, and The New Yorker. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Today, we're previewing two new radio programs that'll start on WNPR in January. A bit later on, we're going to hear from the host and the executive producer of Reveal. It's an exciting new investigative radio hour from the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX. Right now, though, we're talking with David Remnick. He's the editor of The New Yorker, but he's also now the host of The New Yorker Radio Hour, which will start airing on WNPR Sunday, January 10th at 10 a.m. Let's listen to a little bit of an interview that you did recently. Gloria Steinem was on the road, and she was actually on my show not too long ago talking about her her new book, uh, My Life on the Road. Let's listen to a little clip from that conversation. Well, to address some of the deep reasons for hostility to women in leadership roles, women of every race, Hillary and everybody else, I, I think in a deep sense we won't escape this until men are raising children as much as women are and women are as active in the world outside the home as men are. Because right now we... Associate most of us, women too, have been raised by women as infants and little children. We associate female authority with emotionality and nurturance and home. We don't see it as a comfortable kind of leadership in the outside world, a rational leadership where we've mostly seen men. So I, I don't think this is going to go away easily. It's It's going to take quite a long time. That's Gloria Steinem talking on the New Yorker Radio Hour. What did you take away from that interview with Gloria Steinem, David? Well, I, I have to say, you know, as a journalist, you're not supposed to um, get too admiring of anything. But I look back on her career as a political activist and as somebody who not only was herself, but able to get so many different kinds of people in the room, as it were, that I, I am just filled with admiration for her. The book is fine. The book is interesting, but to me, her best book is her life, her career. She has enormous integrity, and I was I was really delighted and, and, and proud to have a conversation with her. Talk a bit about crafting that conversation, because as you said before, people who are on book tours, people who've been interviewed thousands of times, have the little tape recorder playing in their head about 
what they might say to any given yeah. question. And Lord knows she's been asked every every question in the book. When you approach talking to Gloria Steinem, who's had this amazing career and been so influential, what is it you want to get at? First of all, you have to read the book. A friend of mine, Michael Beschloss, who's a historian, American historian, had written a book about the U-2 incident. He went to a radio station, perfectly fine radio station. I think it was a rock, rock and roll place. And he sat down for the interview that you do on book tour. And the interviewer said, so, you too. Is Bono really as awesome as they say? <laughs> At which point Michael Beschler said, wrong you too. And I totally understand why somebody who's got a daily show or doing any number of interviews every day can't possibly read every book that they're talking about. But this is just once a week, and I try to do the reading. That's number one. But at the same time, you have to presume that your listener has not read the book because it's just out. And he or she may not, might not get to it either ever or not for, for a good while. So you have to balance the need for background, setting things up, who is Gloria Steinem, getting the basics out there in some logical and absorbable way, but also keep Gloria Steinem interested and make sure that she's not falling into, or anybody else, falling into their talking points, if that's who they are. And, and the worst, of course, are politicians and movie stars, people who are interviewed for a living. Do you feel like in the long life, we hope, of the New Yorker Radio Hour, you're going to do a lot of politician interviews, or is that the sort of thing you're going to try to avoid? No, I don't see any reason to avoid it. Political reporting and political journalism has a primary responsibility, and that's to keep pressure on power. We elect these people, or they're appointed, and the most important thing for journalism to do is put pressure on them to keep them honest, to keep them open, to find out what they're, if they are concealing things, things that, are, that should be that brought into the, to the light of day to understand why they're making the decisions they're making, uh, stupid or intelligent, pressure on power. And that goes for whether it's an interview or uh, there's nothing worse than listening to a fawning interview on the radio or television or seeing it happen in print. Politicians shouldn't be fawned on. Neither should anybody. That's primary. So I, I, I see no reason not to interview politicians, but just they, they, it has to be done in a certain way. You mentioned Terry Gross. What else did you listen to on the radio growing up? I mean, what do you what do you think when you think of the radio? Well, I grew up in New Jersey and in a town that I saw or perceived as not exactly the height of excitement. And yet the when I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years old, it was in the thick of the late 60s, early 70s. A revolution was taking place beyond my quiet streets. And the way I tuned into it was two ways. One, the music, and the other was through the radio. And I don't mean by listening to the music on the radio, by, which, I, of course, I did, but listening to all the tumult of the world and in not a conventional way. Television was very, very conventional, with some rare exceptions. Last night I watched a documentary about the debates at the 1968 conventions between William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal, first of all, they're embarrassing in, in, in a certain way, but they were unusual and they were contentious and they, they hinted at the, the revolution that was taking place in so many corners and so many ways in the streets. And I heard this on the radio 
at 2 o'clock in the morning on WBAI. Long interviews with everyone from Allen Ginsberg to Bob Dylan to Joan Baez or Eldridge Cleaver, whoever it might be. That world came in through the radio. And what I see and hear now on the radio is a lot of innovation. Not for nothing are podcasts like Serial and This American Life and Radiolab and all the rest. They're being listened to by people and younger people because they take on subjects that are fascinating, of this world, and they take them on in a in a literary way that translates to radio. That interests me a lot. Is it fair to say, though, that because a lot of the popularity of those programs that you just mentioned has come from podcasting, that there's an awful lot of self-selection that is there that wasn't available to you listening to the revolutions of the 60s and 1970s? I mean, you and I had a different experience listening to culture come through the radio because it was being chosen for us as opposed to being able to select the hour that we want to hear to go with our day. Do you think that that changes anything about the impact? No, I I would disagree. I would say, look, when it came to network television, you're absolutely right, because there were only, in those days, there were three networks, and the news was the same, and it was right at the center of opinion, and they weren't challenging your thinking. They were kind of confirming it. I mean, that's a series of cliches, but you know what I mean. Network television was very conformist, and everybody watched it, and they all heard the same news. Radio was much more diverse even then. Now you have the technological capacity to listen to whatever you want to listen to at at whatever time you want to listen to it, and I'm fully aware that the listeners of the New Yorker Radio Hour can either listen to it at 10 a.m. on Saturday morning uh, or whatever time it's playing on in their area on what's now called terrestrial radio. And people can also press a button on a website, the WNYC website or whoever, however they're going to get it, and listen to it when they want to or download it and listen to it at their, at their leisure. That, to me, is fine and not such a radical departure from the radio past. And look, even with The New Yorker, I'm fully aware that in a nation of 300 million people and in a, in a world of many billions that only a few million people are reading The New Yorker. But a few million people, when you actually see what that looks like, you go to Yankee Stadium and that's 60,000 people, and you multiply that by as many as it takes to get to a few million, that's, that's an audience that, um, that you can't be too sad about. That's pretty great. I, I want to listen to a, a little bit more from your program, and this is from an interview that you did with jazz pianist Robert Glasper. At one point during the conversation, you asked him about whether he feels it's his mission to guide young people back into the world of jazz, uh, not just to his music, but to the music of people like Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk. So let's listen to his response. Somewhat it's that. Somewhat it's, it's just like it's about Christian Scott and Marcus Strickland and um, Kenneth Whalem. Yeah, contemporaries, my friends. Miles doesn't have a problem with selling records. <laughs> <laughs> it's my contemporaries that are having a problem. So my, my, my thing is, hey, y'all, you know, all jazz doesn't sound alike. There's a young, fresh sound out there that has influence of our music. So that's why I chose to do jazz trio, but do songs that people of my time today know. Kendrick Lamar, Janae Aiko, Bilal, John Legend, Radiohead, you know, because those are people that, and albums and artists that are relevant now. I'm so glad you did this interview, David, and I, and I love him and his music. And I was wondering um, if you felt, when you came away from that, a little bit more hopeful about the state of jazz today, because there's been a lot of... Uh, dirges written for jazz recently. Well, Robert Glasper is an interesting figure in that he's a bridge figure. He's got jazz 
capacities and abilities, and he studied it very deeply, and he plays it really well. At the same time, unlike a lot of jazz players, he's interested in contemporary composers. As you mentioned, he was, as he mentioned, he, he's been on Kendrick Lamar's records. Uh, they've collaborated, and he's collaborated with a lot of hip-hop people, and that is totally of interest to him. What I worry about, and you're talking to somebody who does listen to jazz a fair amount and grew up with a lot of it, what I worry about is the museumification of jazz. When I go to a jazz club, generally speaking, the audience is not young. And it's not unlike going to a symphony audience, too. If you go to hear a, you know, a, to see a subscription concert at Carnegie, not Carnegie Hall so much as Avery Fisher Hall, or what's now called Geffen Hall, you know, the age is not young. And it, that tells you something. And what you hope for in the case of both classical music and jazz, there's so much to offer. It's such a diverse music that sooner or later people will come around to it. And a figure like Robert Glasper is not only a musician, but he's also an evangelist. He's an evangelist for musics that maybe the Kendrick Lamar listener could use a little, you know, shove toward hearing. And I think one of the problems with the museumification, if that's a word that you mentioned, is you walk into a coffee shop and if they're playing jazz, it's very likely they're playing a Miles Davis record. And it's very unlikely that they're playing a contemporary record. And that's that's something that I suppose we'll need to change through his work and through others. But um, look, I, I, let's not speak ill of Miles. I mean, look, to me, Miles is is Beethoven. It's Bach. It's it's Haydn. It's it's Mozart. It's it's eternal to listen to Miles Davis is eternal. And, and the you know, the music of the spheres. He's he's a genius and was a genius. And no one, including music critics, can get to everything and hear everything. Uh, so when someone with a musical mind like Robert Glasper points you in certain directions, that's something of value to me. So what are some things that you have planned for the radio show that you're really looking forward to, some, some things that you just can't wait to do? I think as we evolve, what we want to see happen more and more is that the reporting talents of the people at The New Yorker, and obviously they have to space out their time to do it, will come to fruition on the radio as well. And it's not lost on any of us that there's an enormous amount of innovative reporting going on on radio, on podcasts, that we should learn how to make our own. It shouldn't be the same. Uh, you know, no one is pretending that we're just going to, you know, we're going to be Sarah Koenig and do serial. She's Sarah Koenig and doing serial quite well. Thank you. Or Ira Glass or, or any of those people. But what's fascinating about the current scene is that the world is cracked open where, where sound is concerned, where the way stories are told are concerned. And the New Yorker has always led the way in writing of a certain kind in a, in a very diverse way. And we want to see what we can do in this medium. David Remnick is editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Radio Hour. It'll start airing here on WNPR on Sunday, January 10th at 10 a.m. David, congratulations on the program. We're so happy to have you here, and thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. I'm delighted, and I really thank your listeners, and I hope they enjoy the program. 
When we come back, we'll hear about another exciting new program that's scheduled to hit WNPR's airwaves this January. Reveal is a weekly investigative radio show from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. We're going to sit down with its host, Al Letson, and also the executive producer of the show. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, as 2015 comes to a close, we head into a new year, we're going to take the day to reflect here at Where We Live. We're going to have a special for you from Backstory. Those guys will take a historical look at the events of 2015. Hope you can join us for that, and Happy New Year to you. Today we're taking a look at two new public radio programs that are coming to WNPR this January. A bit earlier we heard from David Remnick. He's the acclaimed editor of The New Yorker. Now he's the host of The New Yorker Radio Hour. We're going to turn now to another exciting new program. It's called Reveal, an hour-long investigative radio show from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. It starts on Sunday, January 10th at 7 p.m. Joining us now to talk more about the show are the executive producer, Kevin Sullivan, and the host of the show, Al Letson. Kevin and Al, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So, Kevin, why don't you start by just telling us what Reveal is? Sure. So Reveal is an investigative news radio program for public radio. And what we hope to do is bring really engaging stories to listeners about some of the most important issues that we're covering. You know, a lot of times people think that investigative news is like eating your broccoli. Like, this is stuff we really need to know. I have to read it. I have to get through it because there's really horrible stuff happening and I should inform myself about it. But what we realize is, like, people don't want to listen to that necessarily on the radio. So we have to do it in a way that's super engaging. So that's one of the challenges that we face each and every episode. You know, as you know, there's a lot of great radio out there right now and great podcasts. So what we're trying to do with Reveal is bring stories that are incredibly important but also incredibly interesting to listen to. Do you think that the reason why investigative reporting hasn't really taken hold, by and large, on radio is because it's just difficult to tell stories like that in the radio format, or is it because a lot of times investigative reporting has to do with papers that you dig up and numbers and people who won't talk to you? I mean, what what are the reasons why we haven't seen more investigative reporting on the radio in the past, Kevin? Well, those are definitely all challenges that we're dealing with. But you also do see lots of great investigative stories. I mean, NPR has an investigative unit. Other shows on the radio are doing lots of investigations. One of the bigger issues, though, is that they take a lot of time and a lot of resources, and they're really expensive to do. So, you know, we have investigations that are coming out that take six months to a year to put on the air. And so putting that investment into a story takes a special commitment And that's one of the biggest struggles I think that we've uh, dealt with on the radio is being able to invest that amount of time into a story that we can then bring to the radio. Those other things that you talked about, you know, having super complicated stories, stories that are driven by data and documents, there are definitely challenges. But, you know, I think that we found some techniques to deal with them. So Reveal is part of and founded by the Center for Investigative Reporting. But, of course, the center has existed long before an attempt to do radio. Can you just tell us about that evolution? Because the Center for Investigative Reporting has done great traditional print reporting for some time. Yeah, the Center for Investigative Reporting has been around since the 70s. And as you said, they've done, you know, an incredible amount of work since then. 
What Reveal is is an attempt to really be its forward-facing brand so that people in the past, the Center for Investigative Reporting would do a great investigation. They partner with someone and they get the story out there and that was great. But, you know, nowadays you really need to connect with your audience in a different way. So what Reveal is is an effort to bring the stories to people and then to engage with the audience so that we know who's listening to the stories and we can interact with them and answer their questions and hopefully further an investigation and have greater impact. So, Al, you are the host of Reveal, and and a lot of our listeners know you from being the longtime host of the great award-winning public radio program, State of the Reunion. Now, as the host of Reveal, what is your role in all of this? Sure. I think in a lot of ways, uh, my role is to kind of sit back and kind of guide the listener through these uh, investigations. Some of the investigations are pretty complex, pardon the pun. A lot of the things we are revealing take a little bit of time to lay out. So I think what my job is is to kind of take the listener by the hand and say, come on, we can do this, and kind of explain exactly how it all plays out. One of the things that you were so good at on your show, State of the Reunion, is really dropping in on a place and a location and staying there for a bit and getting to know some people and getting to know a little bit about the place. And I assume that it's kind of like that here as well, only the things that you're dropping in on, on Reveal, sometimes don't necessarily put the communities that you're visiting in the best light, or it can sometimes be very difficult conversations that that we're having. Can you talk about that difference? Because I, I think that it's really important to get a feel of what's happening for America, both things that are, are going well, and in some cases with these investigations, things that are, are in some trouble. Yeah, I mean, I think that like the two things, State of the Reunion and Reveal, are kind of uh, siblings in the sense of that both of them were out trying to talk about what's going on in America today. I think uh, with State of the Reunion, you know, the idea was that we were going out and showing how people were trying to come together to fix these big problems. And a lot of times there weren't solutions for it, but people were like rolling up their sleeves to get to it. What Reveal does, and this is what I noticed with State of the Reunion, is that a lot of times there were complex issues that we weren't able to tackle with State of the Reunion because to be quite honest, like I just didn't have a big enough staff. I mean, we were really small. We had like two producers on at any one time. And so a lot of the heavy lifting of the big things, investigations that, you know, we'd want to do, we just really couldn't do. The more I did say the reunion, the more I began to feel like there is something going on in America behind the scenes that we just weren't equipped to talk about. And what Reveal is uh, equipped to do is to tackle that stuff. The staff of CIR, I mean, there's, you know, I don't know how many reporters, but at, at least 20 different reporters that are working on all these different beats. There's uh, about five or six editors there. Uh, they have a, a strong fun- fundraising department. They even have a data team. I mean, like being able to like pull all the data together and, and figure out like the story that the data is telling. Uh, that's huge and amazing. And so it all kind of works together to tell this other side of America that's kind of just under the surface. So I think with State of the Reunion, like we we dealt on the community level. And I think this with Reveal, like we're, we're, we're going a couple levels deeper to really see what's happening behind it all. I think that this is an, an especially good time to be having this conversation, Kevin, because You know, just a few months ago, the release of the movie Spotlight was something that got an awful lot of people in our business very excited because it told an excellent story about how hard it is to do this work and what can happen if you're able to truly mount an investigation and uncover wrongdoing. But it's also been widely viewed as, you know, something that puts investigative reporting and the press really in a good light once again, and the press doesn't always get the best press. Maybe you can talk, Kevin, about the coincidental timing of Reveal going weekly with this new surge in interest in investigative reporting because of that movie. 
I know. I think I owe Hollywood for that one. Um, <laughs> I actually know some of the folks who worked on the Spotlight team. Sasha Pfeiffer, who's a character portrayed by Rachel McAdams, she and I worked together at WBUR in Boston. And um, it was actually pretty cool. While they were filming it, um, Rachel McAdams was always texting Sasha and asking her things like, oh, what kind of pen did you use? And um, what kind of car did you drive back then? And Sasha said, well, I have the same car. And so they're like, really? <laughs> so they took the car and they basically refurbished it so they could use the car in the movie. But So Sasha and I have actually been talking a lot about this since the movie came out, which is absolutely incredible. Anyone who hasn't seen it should go see it. And one of the things that Sasha said is when they go to these screenings, people think that this type of newsroom in newspapers still exists. And unfortunately, you know, while the Boston Globe is still a great paper, while there are great papers out there, newspapers have been decimated over the past 10 to 15 years. Um, For example, the staffs are down 40% since 2003. So if people leave that movie thinking that the intensity and the amount of resources are still there that were available when this movie was actually happening, I mean, when this investigation was actually happening, you know, that's just not the case. Some local papers are still doing great work. Recently, the Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina, started up a four-person investigative team. We have two partners on Reveal, the Houston Chronicle and the Texas Tribune, and the Texas Tribune, which have invested a lot in investigative news. But we do not see the same level of resources available as we did back in the early 2000s before, you know, newspapers really were taking a tremendous hit. And what does it take to get back there? Is it about money? Is it about time? Is it about thinking about audience and and how you reach them in a different way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all of those things, but the audience is really the key factor. I mean, what we found when we talked to public radio stations around the country is that their audiences are demanding this type of in-depth investigative journalism. And we've seen it, you know, in several radio stations around the country. Minnesota Public Radio, you know, won a Peabody Award for their story, which was sort of a legacy of the Boston Globe investigation into the pre-sexual abuse scandal. It was called Betrayed by Silence. And they sort of took the next step in the reporting, telling us what was going on in, in Minneapolis. We're actually partnering with you guys at WNPR this year to work on a, a big investigation with one of your reporters, David DeRoche. So, I mean, investigative reporting is happening at the local level. But often it's happening because there's one reporter who is just grinding away and they will not let a story go. And so what we can do at Reveal is like, work with people at those local stations and help bring their stories to national audience. And that's what we did back in November when we worked with New Hampshire Public Radio. They had done this great story. They had been following this issue for about a year about a neuro rehab center that had been accused of sexual abuse and mismanagement and abuse of patients. And as I said, they covered it locally for about a year. They had a great story. They came to us and they said, you know, we think this could make a great hour for Reveal. So we partnered with them. We provide editing support here. We provided production support. And we were able to put together a great hour looking at what happened there. But then we also, you know, expanded the story and looked nationally at how this one center that was based in New Hampshire had actually been part of a company in the 90s that got broken up by congression after congressional hearings were held. And once that company was broken up, it actually just kind of shut its doors one day and then opened as another under another name, you know, a little bit later. So it's like this whole cycle was happening. 
So we had this local story, and we were able to elevate it to a national level through this partnership with a local station. And we're talking today with Kevin Sullivan, who's executive producer of Reveal. It's a new national public radio program and podcast from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Also joining us is the host of Reveal, Al Letson. Al Letson is a longtime host of State of the Reunion, uh, which was heard here on WNPR. And this is where we live. Al, that picking up on that thought about how the public radio appetite for investigations has changed, that's something I'm sure that you've heard a lot from people as you've traveled the country. Even when you started State of the Reunion, even five, ten years ago, I think people expected something slightly different out of their public radio station. I mean, they wanted us to do hard-hitting investigative work, but I think that there was always a sense that we were supposed to give them a, a slice of life somehow. And more and more, I know I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard while you've been out on the road, that people really want public radio to play a role that just the newspapers and television stations and other people aren't playing. Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, if you look at the trends in public radio, um, for the last three or four years, uh, it seems that most of the the new programs that come out of public radio are sort of like aiming towards that um, entertainment storytelling slash slot. Uh, which is great and fine, but I think that the pendulum swings back, and I think when you look at like what's going on in newspapers and uh, you see your TV news and 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 really like you know what people hear on NPR, I think on a whole people think of it as uh, fair and impartial. Whereas like what, when you go to the television, like you know, depending on the network that you're on, you're not quite sure exactly where they're standing on it. So I think that public radio has a really important role to play uh, in all of that, like where the neutral space, and because the pendulum has been. Sw- swinging so hard towards the entertainment and all of that type of stuff, I think it's now swinging back towards people really wanting public radio to kind of step up and uh, and tell those stories and really dig in deep to what's happening in our communities. And really, you know, nobody's better situated to do it than public radio is. Uh, you know, if you think about it, like public radio has uh, some form of tributary in almost every um, community in America uh, and they see what's going on in the ground. I mean, that's what I learned from working on State of the Reunion is that public radio stations across the country are so connected in with what's happening in their community. And so if we can use the strength of that uh, to turn it into uh, some really, first of all, great stories that people want to hear, but also investigations that reveal uh, the way America works, you know, I think there's power in that. And that's exactly what, um, you know, we're doing over at Reveal. Uh, and the program is going to start airing on WNPR Weeklies on Sunday, January 10th. And we'll have more information on WNPR.org slash where we live. Al Litson, maybe we can talk about one of the investigations you guys have coming up, one into workplace discrimination. Yeah, so uh, I think that's going to air on WNPR on January 10th at 7 p.m. The temp worker industry has had incredible growth since the recession in 2007, 2008. I mean, the industry estimates that it's grown about 57 percent all the way up to 2014. So companies are outsourcing their employment. And in doing that, a lot of business owners are asking these temp agencies for really specific needs. And and basically what it comes down to is racial discrimination and gender and sex discrimination as well. Just what it comes down to basically is discrimination. We spoke to people who worked for the temp agencies and they told us the type of workers that some companies would request. Do me a favor. Do not send me any monkeys. Send me crackers. Big hands, small hands. Big hands is man, small hands is woman. Basically, they referred to people as either a vanilla cupcake or a chocolate cupcake. Blue eyes, you know, brown eyes, you know, that type of thing. My goodness, Al. And those those voices just kind of cut right through you, right? When you hear people saying these words out loud, you think, 
well, I know exactly what they're saying, and I kind of can't believe I'm hearing it. It just kills me because as they're trying to talk in code words, I just think those are some really bad code words. I mean, it's pretty clear what they're talking about. So our reporter, Will Evans, and producer Michael Montgomery heard these complaints from people working in the temp industry all around the country. Like, this isn't an isolated event. And this is uh, this is the investigation you're working with uh, in Chicago on, with WBEZ? Yeah, and we also interviewed Jenny Yang. She's the chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and she told us about this problem. In fact, she even referenced some of the language that we heard in that clip. Kevin, can you tell us about the other investigation you guys are working on that has to do with something I guess I wouldn't have thought was a, a big problem in America, was the problem of feral cats? Right, and as Al says in the show, we're not just doing a show about cats so we can get all the web traffic, <laughs> but it would be really nice if we got some out of it. But no, this is actually a serious problem that's affecting policymakers and communities around the country. What you might not know is, you know, right now cats have overtaken dogs as the most popular pet in our homes. There's about 80 million cats in our homes. But there's another 80 million cats that have been raised in the wild. They're considered feral cats, and a feral cat is basically... There was a domestic cat. It went stray and had kittens, and its descendants are raised in the wild as feral cats. So there's this huge policy debate going on around the country about what to do with these cats. I mean, in a lot of places, you know, they're sort of rounded up and put to sleep, basically. But there's also a huge movement to save these feral cats. And so we have a couple of clips here that we want to play because this is pitting really cat lovers against wildlife conservationists because the wildlife conservationists say these cats are really an invasive species and each night they're hunting and, ki- and one cat can be responsible for up to 100 deaths of a native animal that's living in a community. And so first we're going to hear from Grant Sizemore. He's from the American Bird Conservancy. And um, he's worried about this threat that feral cats have to endangered birds. Feral cats are not endangered. You know, other birds, other wildlife, they're struggling to survive. Many of these are on the brink of extinction. We need to take their populations into account more so than feral cats. And so we really see this debate playing out in Antioch, California, which is a little bit east of us here in the Bay Area in California. And... You have bird lovers, and then you have the cat lovers. And the cat lovers are some of them who are going out every night and feeding feral cats. I mean, they're just like filling giant dog bowls with food and putting it out in the wild. (laughs) And, I mean, they love the cats. They want to keep them. But they're not just doing that. They're also capturing feral cats. It's called trap, neuter, and return. So they capture them. They take them to the vet. They have them spayed or neutered. And then they return them to the wild. And they think that they'll be able to control the population with that. So in Antioch, at one point, the city council gets involved and they decide they're going to ban people from feeding feral cats. And so we have a clip from a woman, Susan Smith, who she's a cat advocate and she's defending her decision to feed them. I'm not going to stop feeding cats. We love those cats. Those cats depend on us. And some of them, yeah, they love us. I don't know if you believe that cats can love. I believe animals can love. We'll feed at night. We'll feed them like ninjas. (laughs) Yeah, and we actually followed her around. Yeah, feed them like ninjas. I don't know what that means, but I love it. Yeah, I mean, so what it means is that they were banned at one point from feeding these feral cats. So they would go, still go out at night and put out giant bowls of food. And we actually have some video of this. We put out a camera overnight and we saw what came to eat this giant bowl of food in the middle of the night. And John, what do you think came out besides the cats? I would assume maybe some possums, maybe some uh, raccoons, that sort of thing. 
Exactly. Possums, raccoons, so many skunks. You would not believe how many skunks there were. It was crazy. I mean, there were a couple of cats in there, too. But, I mean, they fed off of this food for hours. And so people in the community are saying, what are you doing? You're just, like, feeding these wild animals. And, you're, you know, these are the kinds of animals that can carry disease, and they're interacting with these cats, and then the cats are interacting with people. And so they see it as a big issue. I now, by the way, understand what she meant. We'll feed them like ninjas. I thought that they were feeding them as though the cats were ninjas, which is something I didn't understand construction-wise. I get that they were ninjas who were getting out into the dark and feeding the cats. Now I get it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally the day after the ban, they were out feeding the cats again. <laughs> so one, one of the things that's fascinating to me about a story like this is it's the sort of very, very local story which could very easily languish on the back page of a major newspaper or on the front page of a very small-town newspaper. But clearly, I think what you're trying to do with it, Kevin and Al, is you're trying to tell a larger story about something that literally is happening all over America and just zooming in on one little place. And I think that that's what's so nice about radio storytelling like, like that, right? You're actually able to find one group of people who are able to tell a much bigger tale about something happening in America today. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that is part of uh, I think that's the power of public radio, actually, is that like you can take stories that feel really small and local and blow them out because they reflect the rest of the country. And that's exactly what's happening in Antioch. I mean, um, when you see what these people are doing with these cats, it's not just happening in Antioch. Um, It's happening all over the country. People are feeding cats like ninjas. It's pretty impressive. They put on their uh, ninja gear and creep through the, the cities and drop off food. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I guess now we got to look at some of these videos. Al Letson is the host of Reveal. It's a new national public radio program and podcast from the Center for Investigative Reporting, NPRX. The executive producer of Reveal is Kevin Sullivan. This program will start airing weekly on WNPR starting on Sunday, January 10th. We've been airing it in specials throughout the course of this last year, and we're very happy to be part of the Reveal team and working with them on some investigations as well. Al and Kevin, best of luck to you, and thanks so much for sharing some some, uh, information about this great new program uh, with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Our great radio program is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tolarski. Our intern is Sarah Flaherty. You can continue this conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky, and for all the Where We Live team, I want to wish you a very happy and healthy 2016. Talk to you soon. <laughs>